We continue our series in the second half of world history with podcast number 25. In the 24th podcast, in our mini-series, if we want to call it that, on the Second World War, we reviewed the way France was hoping that there would be no way that a future Germany could ever invade its country again because of their state-of-the-art, depending upon how you define that, Maginot Line that was supposed to stop or intercept any future German offense. Again, the Maginot Line was created for the last war, not for this one, which is the reason why the entire German war machine simply rolled, flew, and sailed right past it and over it. We then discussed the miracle at Dunkirk, and then France ultimately asking for peace, which Hitler forced them to do on that exact same rail car that, they, that the Germans were forced to surrender back at the conclusion of the First World War. We then saw and discussed Adolf Hitler start Operation Sea Lion, which was the attack on England because the Prime Minister of Great Britain, that being Winston Churchill, refused to surrender the German forces to Hitler's agenda. In this podcast, we're going to see Hitler begin to start showing the chinks in his armor of what looked like an impenetrable fortress, not only of the European continent, but of the man himself. The fact of the matter is, as we continue on now, is that Adolf Hitler fully expected that Great Britain would at least negotiate terms of surrender so that Hitler would not have to allocate any further future human resources or money to attempt to subjugate and dominate the island nation. If, they wouldn't, if he couldn't get that, he would at least have hoped that Great Britain would have pledged some degree of neutrality. But neither came from the Prime Minister of Great Britain, Churchill himself. Because of that, and especially with Churchill ordering the few remaining able bodied airplanes to be flown by some truly heroic pilots to bomb Berlin, Hitler then flew into a rage and ordered London to be bombed. And again, focusing on London, despite its awesome historical character and the importance of that city, not only to Great Britain, but worldwide, the bottom line is, is that London technically was able to be spared. If there was any city that was going to be bombed, London was the one, because what it did is it saved the airfields and the radar installations from being bombed. So Hitler's initial air objectives were correct. He ordered the Luftwaffe to go after the strategic and military important points. But because Churchill essentially got him in the throat, got him right in the heart of what was important to Hitler, he started to let go of that strategic sense of importance for the military objectives that lay ahead of him. As a result, he started ordering the, he ordered the firebombing and the incendiary bombing of London and the outskirts of London, but that gave Great Britain the breathing room it needed to be able to prepare for an eventual fight with Hitler's Nazi Germany. At the same time, Hitler was also getting desperate. A sense of desperation, though, that was only self-inflicted. 
his mouth watered at being able to launch his prize German offensive, and that being the attack in the Soviet Union and bringing communism down to its knees and then ultimately killed. In an operation that Hitler dubbed Operation Barbarossa, it was to begin in the early parts of 1941. But because Great Britain refused to surrender and continued to fight on, Hitler's ultimate objective was getting further and further delayed. Finally, again out of desperation for fear that the year would just progress too, too far, it would get too late in the year, Hitler ordered the commencement of Operation Barbarossa to begin at ASAP. And it did in the latter half of June of 1941, when Hitler finally was able again to go after his ultimate objective. Ironically enough, he invaded the Soviet Union practically to the same day that Napoleon Bonaparte invaded Russia back shortly before Napoleon surrendered back in 1812. And it was, of course, a colossal nightmare. Over a half a million of Napoleon's troops froze to death as the early Russian winter would set in, a, a winter that Russians and by extension Soviets are more than comfortable fighting in. It's what they were born into. It's what they breathe, cold air and heavy drifting snow. They were more than prepared for it. The French soldiers weren't back in the 1800s and neither will be the Germans in the 1900s. Hitler ignored the criticism attempted to be feigned on him by his immediate individuals that reported to him right underneath him because he said, no, Napoleon was not in the age of mechanization. Times have changed and technology is on our side, Hitler retorted. But nevertheless, they would, they would suffer the same fate. Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union was so ultimately important to him that he wanted to be sure that without leaving anything to chance, that his military objective of owning the city of Moscow and going after one other region within the Soviet empire would ultimately bring it to its knees. You see, the Russians throughout their long, long history have had the defense of basically retreating into their own countryland, into their own interior of their country, in order to eliminate any possibility that they would be invaded and ultimately dominated by a foreign power. This, as we know, Russia is a massive country. At its height during the Soviet Union, it spanned over 10 time zones. This is not a country you're going to conquer easily by marching every mile within the country to own it. But that's where Hitler sadly was smart enough again to realize you didn't have to do that. Rather, you get to one particular area and you could bring the country to its knees. And that's what Hitler was aiming for. So Hitler put his two top military commanders responsible for carrying the Nazi forces east into the interior of the Soviet Union, where he would then pull a, block, a blocking formation or a blocking pattern and basically sit and wait for the Soviet Union to disintegrate. How, you ask? Again, by putting his best men in charge. So in the northern part of Europe, Hitler's number two man would drive on in the northern part of Europe 
and invade the Soviet Union from that from that geological point or geographical, excuse me, geographical point. On the other side, though, people wondered, why is he also putting arguably his number two or number three man, Erwin Rommel? Why did Hitler send him down essentially to make sandcastles in North Africa? What gives? So many people wondered. Once again, it was already spelled out, though. Hitler was putting Erwin Rommel, who would eventually earn the name the Desert Fox, responsible for the invasion of North Africa, not to own it, but number one, and a distant, I should say number two reason, which is a distant second, would be eventually to occupy Egypt, which was one of Great Britain's satellite countries. So that would also then economically hurt Great Britain. But his number one point of superior uh, reasoning and significance is that Hitler was sending Erwin Rommel through North Africa, who would then, after occupying Egypt, would then cut to the northeast, go through the modern-day Middle East, and wind up in the Transcaucasus region of southwestern Europe. That's the region, if you're able to pull a map up, or you know this, from, if you're familiar with this, that's the area where we get the term Caucasian from, that is between the land that is between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. It's that particular area where I had the opportunity to visit many time, many years ago, twice. And it was there that Hitler knew was the jugular of the entire Soviet empire. The Transcaucasus region in the Soviet Union was Francis Paris. You see, as we talked about in the last podcast, to occupy all of France, Hitler didn't need to own all of France. He just needed to invade and, and dominate Paris, and the entire country fell to, in his hands, which is exactly as we know it was what happened. Likewise with the Soviet Union. A vast majority of the Soviet Union's oil and natural gas supplies came from the Transcaucasus region. As a result, if Hitler could occupy that region throughout the late summer into 19, of 1941 into the winter of 1942, he essentially could freeze out the Soviet Union. He would re rob them of their means to heat them to heat their homes and rob them of their cooking, cooking fuel and rob them also of their petroleum resources. It was a genius move on his end, and that's the reason why Hitler put his two top commanders literally thousands of miles apart to join in the middle of the Transcaucasus region. Put another way, it is argued that Adolf Hitler is the commander, is the only person in military history that designed a special type of pincer attack. We know what a pincer is, and I'm sorry if you're not familiar with what a pincer is, it just imagine as its title or its name implies that you have a force coming in from one direction, meeting a force and coming from the opposite direction, and the enemy would then be sandwiched or pinned in between the two forces coming together. That's what Hitler was aiming for in the Caucasus region. To date, as I say, he has broken the record for the largest pincer attack in world history. If you look at the map of Europe, Asia, and the Middle East, you would see this, that Hitler essentially put one of his top men on the European continent. His other man was on the African continent, and together they would meet in the Asian continent. 
It literally was the largest pincer invasion in world history, where three two people from two different continents would be coming together to pin and get its ultimate prize on a third continent. It sadly just showed or demonstrated just the unbelievable scope of Adolf Hitler's thinking when he was at the top of his own deadly game. And as we know, it would never come to fruition because Rommel would never make it out of North Africa into southeastern parts of Asia. He would make serious inroads pushing back Great Britain to Egypt and then almost successfully conquering them when Great Britain was able to push back on them. Within and his northern forces, Hitler's forces got literally within one mile of being able to invade the city of Moscow. And Hitler told them to stop. Once again, just like with Dunkirk, Hitler, why did you tell your soldiers to stop when they were within one mile of conquering the capital of the Soviet Empire? We don't know if it was to leave the forces and make them available to swing south and meet Rommel once he advanced to the northeast the way he was supposed to? Or did Hitler want to arrive there himself and be the first to step into Moscow as they invaded that city? Regardless, it would never be, it would never come to fruition. Hitler waited too long, and the leader of the Soviet Union, Joseph Stalin, refortified the city and threw significant reserves numbering into the millions in the Caucasus region of Southeast Asia of his empire. Hitler was not the only one who was smart enough to realize the Achilles heel of the Soviet Union. Stalin also knew that and again refortified accordingly. What's also coming into play against Hitler is the fact that he could not use the German rail lines to move the forces as fast as he wanted to throughout that region because, again, Joseph Stalin moved the rail lines from the international standard of 56 and a half inches apart to 36 inches. Because of that, the rail lines initially would be unavailable to Adolf Hitler. That would give Stalin just enough breathing room that he desperately needed. So as we advance now into yet another phase of the Second World War, we look at the periods of 1942 into 43. Hitler would revise his grand strategy once again. He would make a renewed push to aim for his creation of the Third Reich. As we talked about before, again, that first Reich was Christmas Day 800 with the creation of the Holy Roman Empire. That first Reich would last 848 years until the 1648 with the Treaty of Westphalia ending the Thirty Years' War and bringing the First Reich to an end. The Second Reich was under the auspices of the Iron Chancellor Bismarck, Otto von Bismarck, who unified the 115 plus German principalities into one Germany that arguably is still in almost those same configuration on the world, on the European map today. However, within Hitler's push, though, he did not have any one single plan that has ever been uncovered for an established government. As a dictator, the thought being that he had no 
premonition, no thoughts on any individual who would possibly succeed him. Certainly he had his preferences who that person might be, but we don't see that established outline plan the way we did his military plans. And he pushed even harder for promotion of the German people at the expense of the inferior people, as he put it. Please know the reason I'm stressing these renewed initiatives is because these other parts of Hitler's plan and activities is sapping not only the human resource strength that, that Hitler desperately needs for the fighting in the East, but it's also sapping the, the Reich for much needed funds. Simultaneously, while Germany is struggling to invade the Soviet Union, with the Western Europe under the Nazi flag at this point, for all regions with the sole exception of Andorra in the Pyrenees Mountains, along with Switzerland, Spain, and Portugal, Japan also was jumping in this the global conflict with its sneak attack on June, December 7th, 1941, with the invasion and attack on Pearl Harbor. United States base there in the Hawaiian Islands. The United States within 24 hours declared war on Japan. Germany and Italy declared war on the United States literally just one day later. Rommel at this point was making his drive almost all the way through Europe. This would force between Hitler's success sadly in North Africa, his push to get into the Soviet Union, along with the fact that, Jap that Japan was attempting to subjugate the United States, Franklin Roosevelt realized that the United States could remain neutral no longer and had to jump into the fight. Unfortunately, it was going to force the Americans, though, to jump into two theaters of war simultaneously. The drawback with that is that it forces the, it would force the president in, to use and split his military. When we're talking about a theater of war, we are truly talking about two different locations on the globe, extremely far from one another. That distance makes it extremely difficult to try to replenish resources. Because of that, Franklin Roosevelt was going to have to take a gamble and put his eggs, most of his eggs, into one basket, either pushing back Adolf Hitler or pushing back the Japanese empire under Hirohito. Hitler would be the first target of Franklin Roosevelt, and he made the right call. We believe that Franklin Roosevelt knew it then. Historians and military strategists have long credited Roosevelt with making the right decision. If you look at the world map, though, or go to Google and type in the height of Germans' Nazi occupation of Germany, of Europe, look at that landmass. Now, Put this in a Google search engine, the height of Japan's conquest during World War II. And what do you see? Japan is colossally far, far larger in terms of areas it controls than Hitler ever had hoped to achieve. Japan was massive from its home islands north to the Koreas and north of that all the way through China, Southeast Asia, into the Philippines, and all the way west to the Hawaiian Islands. Japan was massive. Why then did Franklin Roosevelt choose to go after Hitler first? Despite Japan's size, 
pushing back on an enemy who occupies land is in some cases far more difficult than pushing back an enemy who for the most part occupies more water than they do land. You see, to push Hitler back, there would be no cheating. You can't dive into the middle of Hitler's occupied areas and hope that the areas behind you would suddenly surrender. Absolutely not. You'll get killed. If you're going to push Hitler back, the Allies knew that they would have to push from one angle, possibly open up a second one later on, and then slowly start to push in. And you have to take that land step by step. On the water, you don't have to do it that way. If the Allies, if the United States could lead the Allies in isolating the Japanese out in the Pacific, America wouldn't have to invade every island to eventually get their way back to the home country, Japan itself, in the Japanese islands. That's why they called it an island hopping campaign. Island hopping meaning they didn't invade every every island that Japan owned. They only took that they only went after the ones that were of strategic importance. Case in point, look at Iwo Jima. Rarely is there a person that doesn't know that the island of Iwo Jima was of unbelievable strategic importance to the Allies during World War II. But have you ever heard of Chichijima? Chichijima was another island that Japan was holding. But we just simply let them, by and large, starve into submission. We didn't need the islands, so we didn't have to bother wasting our resources invading. That's a strategy you couldn't use in the continent of Europe and North Africa. That's the reason why Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill would join together, eventually be joined by the Soviet Union with Joseph Stalin. Why? Because your enemy's enemy has suddenly now become your friend. And the three of them would slowly push Hitler back to his own country to eventually be dominated, killed, and then that threat neutralized. And as we know, that was going to take years to do. So that's the reason why, again, Franklin Roosevelt focused on Hitler. Now, the question is, where does Adolf Hitler receive that initial Allied invasion? If you look at, the, again, the map of Europe, the Mediterranean Sea area, and North Africa, the most logical place to push back against Adolf Hitler would, of course, have been anywhere along the coast of the English Channel along France and the Benelux countries. Yet if you notice, our initial pushback was nowhere near those countries. In fact, it wasn't even on the European continent. We started invading Hitler's land holdings by truly knocking on his furthermost door in North Africa by coming in on the western coast of Morocco and working our way across the northern half, the Maghreb, the northern top tier of the African continent, to eventually meet up with the British forces that were pushing back from Egypt. Between the British forces under Bernard Montgomery moving west, with Eisenhower and his commanders moving east from the western coast of the continent of Africa, they would eventually sandwich the desert fox, Erwin Rommel, in, forcing him to retreat from the continent. And it would take many, many months and thousands of lives. But why, again, 
would Franklin Roosevelt have chosen to knock on Hitler's door at the furthest most point? Because that's how badly we were fearful of the strength of Adolf Hitler. We knew that to knock anywhere closer would be almost certain invitation to defeat. So we went to his outermost perimeter and started working our way towards him, square mile by square mile. At the same time, Hitler would also realize that he could not continue to support Erwin Rommel in North Africa because he was truly running out of resources. The Battle of Stalingrad, the final culmination of fighting that Hitler made as an offensive operation, began in late 1941 and went all the way through to the early part of 1942. It was, to date, the bloodiest battle in all of human history. One that obviously we, we never, is a, is a, a, a record, we certainly never want to break. To put this into hard numbers, it's one thing to say it's a bloody battle, but what exactly does that mean? The Battle of Stalingrad, to put it into hard numbers, resulted in this. For every 1,000 men that were pushed in by the Soviets and 1,000 men pushed in by Hitler, for every 1,000 men that entered that battle, only four came out unscathed. Not four out of 10, not even four out of 100, four out of 1,000. It truly was an absolute bloodbath from beginning to end. But between Hitler having his resources drained there, on top of having significant logistical problems overall, the disintegration of the Nazi regime was beginning now. But do not please underestimate the failure of Hitler's logistics to also be the way he slit his own throat. Hitler again, and I do not mean to pay this man any compliments, but in many ways Hitler was a master strategist and tactician. But where he failed significantly was in his logistics. Logistics, as we recall, Strategy says, how do we get to the battlefield? Tactics says, how do we fight once we get there? Logistics asks, how do we keep our forces there? And that's where Hitler had drastically and deadly underestimated how much his own soldiers would need. Hitler's failure to invade the Soviet Union would be because of logistics. Ironically enough, the exact same reason Napoleon would fail in invading Russia just 12 decades prior. So the damage was done. And what we saw, and there's plenty of pictures of it, is that we had many, many, is that Hitler had many of his tanks, planes, and other armored vehicles in the northern part of Europe that were ready to go with full tanks of gas, but they didn't have the oil. Or in North Africa, there were rows and rows of armored vehicles that, that Rommel could have used and started in a minute, except the problem is, is that they were given the lightweight oil, not the heavyweight oil. The hotter your temperatures are, the different viscosity you need in your oil. As a result, those orders were cross-shipped. So the oil that Rommel needed for those extremely high temperatures and dry, arid uh, climate went north to the Soviet Union and vice versa. So these kind of logistical nightmares also is what, of course, was sealing Hitler's fate as the Allies continued to make more and more advances in this second 
world conflict. So we're going to leave it there in our covering of World War II up to this point. When we come back, we're then going to begin with the year 1944, and we're going to jump into the middle of the year with arguably one of the most famous battles, if not in all of world history, clearly of the 20th century. And that would be none other than D-Day. And a little bit of homework for you between now and then. I'm sure there's not a listener out there that has not heard the term D-Day. So here's my question and homework for you. What does the D mean? Why do we call it D-Day? Well, I haven't got that far in the history book, so let me look that up, and we will begin with D-Day in our 26th podcast in our series on the second half of world history. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great day. Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting.